Hey, it's Guy Raz here, and I am excited to introduce you to my friend Mindy Thomas. She is the co-host of NPR's incredible new podcast for kids. It's called Wow in the World, and every week we'll take you and your kids on amazing adventures through the world of wonder and mystery and imagination. Subscribe to Wow in the World however you get your podcasts. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. John Waters is a director who hasn't made a movie in over a decade. And right now he doesn't have any imminent plans to make movies in the future. But he's keeping busy. He's done a ton of live performances. He released a few compilation albums, and he's a published author, too. His latest book is based on a commencement speech he gave at RISD, the Rhode Island School of Design, a couple years ago. And if you think about it, asking John Waters to give a commencement speech is a pretty bold pick, right? I mean, ask the man himself. School? He is not that into it. I didn't try at all. That's what, <laughs> that was the problem. I didn't care if I got out or went. So it wasn't like a couple tries. I wanted to just not go. And I always said if I quit school when I was 16, I would have made one more movie and know exactly what I know today. <laughs> but it's different now. If I had a kid, I would want him to go to school. Unless they knew what they wanted to do right from the beginning. Then you don't have to go to school. The reason you go to school is to figure out what you want to do. I always knew what I wanted to do. I always knew what I wanted to do. Become friends with John Waters. It's Bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk with John about his new book, his love of everything Little Richard, and his seriously astounding personal library. One that includes plenty of titles by people he can't stand. I think you have to do that to to know what the other side's thinking and to be well-rounded. You have to hear the arguments from both sides, even ones you don't agree with, and at least consider what they're saying, even though you don't agree with them. Then I'll talk with Andy Kindler. He's a stand-up comedian. He hosts the Hulu show Coming to the Stage. He also has a reputation for being one of the most legit truth-tellers in comedy, the kind of dude who isn't afraid to take other comics to task. That, of course, includes himself, maybe more than anyone else. I believe that my target audience, I did some, I did some uh, research studies and groups, and we found out that my target audience, my target, my target audience is men my age who are me. And finally, I'll tell you about the magic of one Ricky Henderson of Oakland, California. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My first guest is John Waters. He's the guy who made Pink Flamingos, Hairspray, Crybaby. But he is so much more than that. He's written about half a dozen books. His latest is called Make Trouble. It's an illustrated transcript of a commencement speech that he gave a couple of years ago. He acts sometimes, too, and I swear, he might be the most charming man on earth. He's also a great record collector. He even released a couple of really terrific compilation albums. He got his first ever record when he was seven years old. It was a copy of Little Richard's Lucille, which he shoplifted. Of course, he shoplifted it. Lucille, 
John Waters, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you back on the show. And it's nice to meet you in, in person. person. That's a beautiful yeah. shirt. What kind of shirt are you wearing? Oh, it's come to Garcon. Of course it is. Just before we went on the air, we were talking about how last time you were on the show, we dedicated a solid 15 minutes of our allotted time to discussing the designer Rick Hawakubo. There you go. Yep. It's a rock-solid shirt. I enjoy it. Thank you. I have a question for you that occurred to me as I was reading this morning. You've worn your signature mustache for decades. Was it in part inspired by Little Richard's mustache? Oh, of course it was. Yeah, I wrote about that. Yes, it was definitely Little Richard before that. The platters, the guy in the platters had it. And every store detective in every 30s movies I saw had it. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so still, I, I think it was Little Richard, definitely. I mean, like, Little Richard is a guy who... He's still with us, too, the last one. He is, absolutely. Well, the, the killer, Jerry Lee Lewis, is still around yes. as well. Yeah. But I, when I watch a clip of uh, Little Richard performing in 1956 yeah. or 1957, that... I absolutely cannot believe is real like i can't i can't imagine what it must have been like to hear mayor oats and then have little richard come on well i remember because i was around then and i bought that first specialty 45 of him singing i forget lucille i think was the first one i had of his and i remember my grandmother completely freaking out when i took little richard home and the whole antique shook and she heard him screaming lucille upstairs what the hell is that if she'd seen him she would have been really uptight but she didn't see him do you remember when you saw him first I saw him, you mean in person when I interviewed him for Playboy, but um, when I saw him first was probably on The Girl Can't Help It, the movie, or maybe on Ed Sullivan. Was he on there? I'm sure he was. Probably so. And playing that piano with that hairdo and everything, I thought, oh my God, it was like a Martian landed. Yeah, it was, it was the exact opposite of 50s white suburban Baltimore where I lived and how I grew up. I mean, he came out of like a tent show world. He was a drag queen at yeah. one point named Princess Yvonne. <laughs> That's what he said in his book, but then he denies his book after, you know, when he's torn still between religion and Little Richard. But that was like a, that was like this kind of drag queen that he was, was like a thing that went on in, in tent shows and also revival yeah. shows to some extent. And like he came out of this whole world you know, he was the only part of it to ever appear on television. But it's amazing to think that that could have ever been on television. Like it's well, then, yeah, it's outrageous now. It is, it is, and uh, and especially to think that Pat Boone would dare cover his songs, which is the most <laughs> complete opposite. He must have been so furious when he heard Pat Boone go a wop bop a loom a lop bam boom, and really that was the sound of Little Richard doing the dishes in the Greyhound bus station. That's what he said. That's where that song came from. Your new book, which is called "Make Trouble," is a commencement speech, and commencement speeches are advice. Like it's like here's wisdom that I have. Well, I gave him my wisdom, whatever you could call it. I, I wouldn't call it wisdom, but it was good practical advice. I, I Okay, so the, what I want to know is, John, I know it took you a, a number of tries to make it out of both high school and college. Well, no, I didn't try at all. That's what, <laughs> that was the problem. I didn't care if I got out or went. So it wasn't like a couple tries. I wanted to just not go. And I always said if I quit school when I was 16, I would have made one more movie and know exactly what I know today. But it's different now. If I had a kid, I would want him to go to school. 
unless they knew what they wanted to do right from the beginning. Then you don't have to go to school. The reason you go to school is to figure out what you want to do. I always knew what I wanted to do. Was there anyone in your life that you considered wise when you were the age of college graduation, when you were 22? Oh, at 22, I didn't think anybody was wise. Well, maybe Jonas Mikas, who wrote the underground film column in The Village Voice. Uh, there were certain, yes, at 22, I thought people were wise because I had discovered Bohemia. I know Tennessee Williams and Warhol and Beatniks and all that. Yes, but 22, definitely. But by then, you're an adult. It, when you need those kind of role models and those kind of things is when you're 14 and, and trying to figure out what you want to be and floundering and thinking, let me out of here, which is what I thought about suburbia, let me out of here. And luckily, I had parents that even though they were horrified by everything I did, they realized I had an interest. So they encouraged me in that direction, even though they were completely mortified by the work. Yeah, but 22 is a little older. That's right around when I made 22. I was born in 46. That would be how, what year? Like 68. All right. That's right when I was making multiple maniacs. Right. So I was pretty angry and crazy at that period. But um, what did you aspire to be? What did you the think? The filthiest you could... person alive. That's what came next. The multiple maniacs was trainer reels for Pink Flamingos, basically. So I was making a movie that was basically a punk rock movie before there was even such a word. And I never knew what punk was. There wasn't any such thing. But Why... it was a movie to scare hippies. Why did you want to be the filthiest man alive? What What did you like As about that As a humor. I say that with great humor. Of course. Hopefully. You know, I'm saying it. Because I wanted a new extreme. I wanted a hippie extreme. That The hippie stuff was too corny for me. Even though I was a hippie, I was a yippie. But at the same time, I, I didn't want to sit around singing if I had a hammer. You know, that was not me. We made fun of hippies, even though we were. We used to go in San Francisco and dump white sugar on communes, doorsteps and stuff just to cause trouble. You're a person who's really passionate about connecting with the like smartest, most interesting people that you can find who also disagree with you and are different from you, right? To a point, I think you have to do that to, to know what the other side's thinking and to be well-rounded. You have to hear the arguments from both sides, even ones you don't agree with, and at least consider what they're saying, even though you don't agree with them. Do you feel like it's important to be a charming person? Charm is how you get away with stuff. Yeah, I'm a hustler. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a carny. Well, I mean, you're here hustling so right sure. now. I'm of grateful for it. I'm, gl- I'm glad you take the time to it's hustle, or else I wouldn't have never ever gotten to meet you. It's a fair trade, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's more than fair. <laughs> I think I guess, and I've heard, you know, the, the idea of charm came up recently on the show when my guest was a friend of mine named Guy Branham, that charm is also something that is extra important, at least as he conveyed to me in his experience, when you are gay in a hostile world, that charm is a really... It's a really important tool to have, that yeah. to have that social, that social grace, that fluidity is vital sometimes even to your physical well-being. Yes, but un- luckily, I think in America today, I don't feel the world is hostile against me because I'm gay. I'll be honest. I don't feel any prejudice because I'm gay. But that's the world I live in, you know, and I've worked for 70 years to make sure I live in that world where I'm not around but I don't live in Chesnia. You know, I mean, there's terrible places, yes. So, um, but I think it depends where you're from. Charm has helped me, whatever charm I have, is it's basically humor still. It's like, uh, it, it, it's how you get along with people. And I like people that can make me laugh, that are polite and funny and get away. I don't like 
just idiots that are rude, loud people are, are generally not so funny, usually. They're not so witty. Like, I hate jokes when someone says to me, want to hear a joke? Oh, please don't tell me a joke. But be funny. That's fine. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with John Waters. He's got a new book out. It's called Make Trouble. Have you, through your career, had long-term goals or... Have you focused on short term? Yeah, long term goals. Always, I can always find a way to tell stories. So long ago, I was smart enough to know just don't depend on the movies. That might not happen one day. So I always wrote books, did spoken word, did all different ways. So I had many backup plans. And I think that's something that everybody should do no matter what business they're in. Do you still think about your career in terms of long term goals? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I've signed a two book deal. I got two, I got homework. <laughs> Yeah, I got plenty of homework. Do you, like, get up and sit down at a keyboard and... Not a keyboard. I have evidence, legal pads that I like that I was so mad. I've used them to write every book and every movie, and recently they got cheap, the paper, and I called the company, and they sent me, like, boxes of improved, newer, higher-priced paper that they put out that doesn't curl up when you take it off the pads like the kind I always used to use. So, um, no, I have to have Bic pens, my evidence pad, and I write all the books by hand and everything and put scotch tape and cut up. But then the first draft's done it. My assistant puts it in the computer, and then it's, you know, and then it keeps going. But I never sit there and type. Do you feel a burden as uh, there's that famous Jay-Z lyric, I'm not a businessman, I'm a businessman? Like, do you do you feel a burden as the head of John Waters Industries that they're not just an assistant, but probably a few people work for you? I have like, a, you know, four people that work for me. And yes, I feel like, yeah, I got a big, I live in th- four different places. I got a lot of bills every month. Yeah. So I got to keep thinking up projects. Yeah, definitely. But um, I'm in a pretty comfortable position today, finally, after doing this for 50 years. Certainly, I wasn't always, but certainly pretty much I figured it out now. It's going fine. Would you be making movies if you could? Well, I got, I've got i had four development deals from Hollywood Studios, and each time they paid me, great, and then they didn't make the movies. So, um, I guess. But the books did better. The last two books I did did way better than the last two movies I did in profit and money and how they were received. So um, I just stay where they like me. I mean, one of the weird things about movies is the extent to which you don't have control over the process, even even if you're an auteur. I always did in the end. Even with I knew how to negotiate in Hollywood, I think. I did the screen test. I mean, the market testing. I did all the stuff. In the end, I had big fights, but... Not that big. Not big so I'm Alan Smithy. You know, I had to take my name off it and put that fake name on it that you do. Um, I have to tell you, the Directors Guild gave me the best pension you can imagine. Let me tell you, you should always be pro-union. What did you learn from market test? Which of your movies got market tested? Everyone from Hairspray on. Okay, so what did you learn from market testing? You always learn something in the beginning, a simple thing. Why did that minor question that you can change by putting one shot in or something? What you can't fix is that after they keep going and they test, they keep the focus group. They keep saying, well, what you like, you like, you like, they liked it. And then finally, what didn't you like? And you finally, they get somebody to say one thing they didn't like. And they zoom in on it and spend hours until they beat you down for false confessions where you start saying you don't like it. And then they expect you to fix that. Or they say, what is your least favorite character? Well, they pick the villain. <laughs> You're not supposed to like the villain. But the head of the market testing said to me once, what is the Normie test you against? Right. So, But yet I learned that 
that's part of how it works. And if they're going to give you enough money to buy an apartment, then you're going to have to do that. So that is just the reality of the situation. So I did learn that and how to negotiate my way through it. In the long run, all the movies came out the way I wanted them to. Do you think about what you would like your legacy to be? Well, I'm writing a book right now where the last chapter is you talk about death and stuff. So in a way, I've already had big retrospectives at the British Film Institute. I won the Writers Guild Lifetime Achievement Award this year. So all that is great. It's like I've lived long enough where they can't get rid of you. And I, I take that with great honors. But it's like being at your funeral and getting to hear the nice things they say when you're dead. Only I'm alive so I can hear them. So um, that's good. That's really great. So all my dreams have come true. And I know that makes people listening want to puke when they hear somebody say that. <laughs> but they have. This is gravy. Well, what do you do with yourself when all your dreams have come true and you're in gravy time? You keep working and have a happy life. And, and try to uh, sit back and look back fondly on all the wonderful things that have happened. Are you good at that? Do you? Yeah, I'm okay at it. Sit, yeah. Can you sit fondly in your? I mean, in my filthdom. Well, yeah, like that. <laughs> like that. Yes. I, I think a lot about Tom Lair, who, who quit the comedy record business very early, and his line about it always was, "What's the use of having laurels if you don't rest on them?" <laughs> well, no, but, I keep going. No, and I've had other people. Like Wolfgang Tillman said this to me. Why do we keep doing this? Haven't we done enough? Why don't we just stop? Why do we keep putting our neck on the line? Because you like doing it. It's part of what you do. And maybe it's like, I'll sleep when I'm dead. You got to keep, we only got so much time here. Let's let's do as much as we can and uh, to try to leave something, you know? And I guess that's because everybody in show business is insecure. How do you feel about death? You know, I'd like to avoid it, but <laughs> not, there's not much way. Um, I'm already 71, so uh, my parents both live to be 90. So um, who knows? You know, it's coming. It's, uh, I'm not sitting around worrying that the Ingmar Bergman guy in the hood in the safe is going to come around the corner at me. But um, certainly I have my will done. You know, I'm prepared. Are you worried about it? Are you worried about it? Well, it seems like kind of what else are you going to do about it? No, you do. You can't help but think about it when your friends die and you see your parents die and you go through it. You cannot help but imagine it, you know? So, and you always think, oh, I hope I die in my sleep. But you don't get the choice. That's the unfortunate thing. Almost everything else in life you get to choose or you can take responsibility for it. You don't get to choose this. So um, it is, in a way, the final chapter that you don't can't write yourself. And so, um, yeah, I worry about that only because you want it to be... I don't want, you know, some people I remember that died, I, my last image of them when they were very ill, I don't want people to remember me like that. I Call me. Don't come visit. I heard an interview recently with Terry Gross, who I very much admire, and she said that she was less worried about death than she was about dying. Well, of course. I mean, because... Once you're dead, you know, seems to be it. But the dying part, I mean, my mother took three years and it wasn't pretty, you know, but she had a great life up till then. So, um, yeah, you can't do anything about it. You have to get through that part and it can be endless. It's not easy to die. You're still smiling and giving me very definitively ended answers as we talk about this. Well, that's like a superpower. <laughs> no, it's just um, it's coming. It's coming. You know, keep repeating. It's not a movie. It's not a movie. Do you think of death as like as a that's it? 
Yes, and, I don't think anything happens afterwards. You know, the worms crawl in, the worms crawl out. Do you find that? Although the resurrection will be fun, <laughs> but what am I going to wear? <laughs> Do you find that to be a a pleasant thought or an unpleasant thought? My wife is. She's like, well, I wasn't bothered before I was born. I won't be bothered after well, I die. Well, that's a good way to put it. I did buy my plot, and we all bought the same plot. Mink Stoll, Pat Moran, Divine. We're all going to be in the same graveyard, and we call it Disgraceland. So we're going to all be together. So if you outlive me, come do the Madison on my grave. <laughs> I will. I am absolutely 100% on board all with right. that. You can do worse. We've got more of my interview with John Waters after a quick break. Coming up, John Waters and I go to the mat. Over trigger warnings. No flipping. Red hot NPR action. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for Bullseye and the following message comes from ZipRecruiter. When you own a business, if you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all the top job sites, and now you can. Thanks to ZipRecruiter.com, you can post to 100-plus job sites with one single click and have the highest chance of finding that perfect candidate. Plus, you can instantly be matched to candidates from over 6 million resumes. Businesses of all sizes have used ZipRecruiter. Try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash first. Hey, everybody, before we get back to the show, do you love Bullseye? Like so much that you want to tell everybody you know about it and you want to hear your voice on the radio, maybe? Leave us a voicemail at 323-484-4712 and tell us why you love the show. Uh, You know, keep it relatively pithy, but be honest, like be frank. What do you love about Bullseye? What do you say when you recommend it to friends? Uh, We're making some promos for the show. That number again, 323-484-4712. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm here in the studio with the legendary film director, John Waters. He's got a new book out. It's called Make Trouble. When I was reading your book, I was, I have to say, like I was, I found it genuinely inspiring and I was, felt grateful for it. One thing that I, that I was not on board for was that I actually am pro trigger warning. Like, oh, God, I, I'm not. I like trigger war- Maybe it's the millennial one. in no, me. I need one now when they tell me they like the Pope. Because <laughs> this Pope's the worst of all to me. But I don't understand the trigger warning because when I thought you went to college so you would have ideas that made you uncomfortable. The same reason I can't stand people to get on airplanes so that they have to have pets with them. That makes me insane. But too. I don't... You I, should stay home if you're that crazy. In all sincerity, though, John, like... I mean, when I think about trigger warnings, the person I think about actually is my dad. So my dad was in the Navy, and he has suffered his whole life very seriously from post-traumatic stress disorder. Like, it's a huge—I mean, it's a huge part of my life. Right. So living with that trauma is a huge part of his life. And, you know, the main thing that— uh, trigger warnings come up around unless they're being used as a straw man is usually sexual assault and I think it's hard it definitely had to be explained to me in real patient listen to this for a second straight guy uh, terms but I think for men especially straight or gay 
the extent to which the trauma of sexual assault has affected the lives of people around us and the profundity of that trauma is kind of hard to grasp. But I disagree. So not everyone had that trauma and not every person had it. So why shouldn't people be able to discuss Anything they want, but they totally are. I mean, like the and thing about a trigger can, warning. The, no, a trigger the thing about what a trigger they, warning is is it says, "Hey, listen, this traumatic thing is going to come up." So I think that's what everything that you talk about in college should make you uncomfortable. Should be something you've never talked about. To me, that's or otherwise stay home and just never be challenged or never, never maybe. Maybe sometimes you have to get beyond that. Maybe when you go to a shrink, that's all you do is talk about the problem. So why can't you talk about it with other people? Why can't you? To me, just you're making everybody suffer for one thing. If if if, if that's big enough trauma, then you don't go to that class. You don't sign up for a class that maybe you're going to talk about that or anything. But college seems to me a place where you purposely go to go beyond your comfort zone to consider every idea and to hear every idea and to argue, to debate, to everything. So to me, it's only in rich kids' schools. I promise you they don't have trigger warnings in poor kids' schools in Baltimore. It's in rich kids' schools where there are two courses or folk dancing in Uganda. They don't have report cards. Uh, come on. You know what I mean? It's for rich kids. Hey, I happen to have gone to a public school that it's, didn't have report cards. Did, you didn't have trigger warning in that school, I bet. Well, I, yeah, of course we did. I went to UC Santa Cruz. You think we didn't have trigger warnings? I mean, they were brand new at the time. This, I'm I'm old enough that yeah. that it was a new idea. But like, I don't. I also don't think that because someone and they because report teachers and like now teachers live in fear of what they can talk about. I don't understand that. But I don't go to school, so I don't care. <laughs> you know, I hated school my whole life. So it doesn't matter. I'd hate it even more now. I'm with you. So, I'm with you on that one. Am so, I allowed to say that on NPR? So so to me, if I quit school in sixth grade, I would know the same and would have made one more movie. Do you feel do you feel a different creative impulse as a 70 year old man than you did when you were a 25 year old man you described when you were young you describe yourself as angry are you do you, or do you not feel driven by that anymore well i'm you know a 71 year old angry man isn't <laughs> come on uh, but when you plenty you're 20, of 25 year old angry yeah, angry men are Sexy and exciting. No, <laughs> you can be, you can be an alcoholic. You can be a drug addict at twenty. It's still fun and it's sexy and exciting. It's just as the years go by, it's not. Um, but uh, I, then I was much more insane, kind of. So I basically, although I got all those movies made, I don't know how when I look back on it, but I did. So I'm not that different. No, I don't think I've changed so much. I've been doing the same thing for fifty years. Are you able to accept it when people come up to you? Like, accept it into your heart when people come up to you and say, you changed my life. Oh, people start crying when they see me now, which is really embarrassing. But, no, it's very moving. It's very nice. And, and they come and they say, yes. As, as one girl wrote me a letter and said, this is true. She said, you had a analingus joke in one of your things. And I came home and I had never looked at my anus. So I did in the shower and I saw a bump and I went to the doctor and I had cancer, rectal cancer. And you saved my life. That's a really beautiful story, it Josh. It was, I thought. A single tear is rolling down yes. my cheek. Which cheek? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Always go out on a punchline. John Waters, thank you so much for joining thank me on Thank you Bullseye. for having me. What, what a joy and an honor it is thank to get you. to talk to you, John. John Waters. We'll have an Amazon link for his new book, Make Trouble, on our website. Just go to MaximumFun.org. 
Also, uh, there we'll have a link to the new Criterion Edition re-release of his movie Multiple Maniacs, one of his first movies ever. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Andy Kindler is a stand-up comedian. He's also the host of the Hulu TV series Coming to the Stage, stand-up showcase. And besides that, he's also kind of comedy's ombudsman. Every year since 1996, Andy has taken the stage at the Just for Laughs Festival in Montreal to give what he calls his State of the Industry Address. Andy gets in front of a giant crowd of stand-ups and comedy industry people and basically puts everyone on blast. And doing that has given Andy a reputation as being sort of a comics comic. And also the fact that he is stylistically kind of a comics comic. Of course, the speech is also really, really funny. It gets a huge crowd every year. Here's a little bit from the State of the Industry speech that Andy gave last year. The state of our industry is strong. (laughs) The state of our industry is funny. I'm very excited this year. I'm never excited, so when I say that, that's just a way of whipping up uh, fake uh, enthusiasm. I'm This year I'm announcing that I'm finally going to take my career public. <laughs> and I'm also uh, planning, a, there will be a hostile takeover by, by my bitterness. Come on, it's a business joke. I have a new stage name. I call myself the Antichrist. <laughs> Turning water into wine. W-H-I-N-E. Thank you, Josh Elvis. Weinstein wrote that joke. Why am I giving anybody credit? I'm not doing well. Why should I help him? <laughs> Andy Kindler, welcome to Bullseye. Well, thank it's you very ni- much. It's nice to see you. I, I saw you take a note during the course of that. Was there a joke yeah, that you the, had told that you liked? Well, first of all, I, I wrote the joke, Take My Career Public, but I did, never got the double entendre that my career is at such a low level right. that nobody's <laughs> seen it. Now, that just shows you either the genius of comedy writing or that I am a savant of some type. <laughs> Because I just saw it as, as a uh, as a Wall Street joke, but now people were laughing because they realized that uh, it's a, another self deprecation bit. I have never seen you do more than say five minutes on stage without being upset about a joke that you've told, or I mean, I guess maybe not that if you were talking specific, if you were doing jokes about how badly your career was going. But mostly you're upset about the joke that you just told. Mostly I'm upset. Well, I've realized from watching other comedians, and if I've repeated anything I've said before, why would you listen to me before and now listen to me now? Just <laughs> I only want people who have never heard me before. You just want to, one shot. To listen to this spot. If you've heard me before, uh, take your kids out of the room. No, uh, the what was the question? The question was, I don't think I've ever heard you talk for five minutes without starting to talk about how badly a joke had just gone. Right. Well, I noticed from watching other comedians uh, in the audience 
that comedians in general, not all comedians, but comedians in general always think they're doing worse than they're doing. And I am the the prime uh, committer of that crime, whatever that word would be. I always think I'm doing worse. Now, sometimes I'm not. Sometimes I'm just having fun and I know I'm doing well and who cares. But if I don't get, I don't know what it is in my mind that I want, how I wanted people to react to comedy when I first started, but I wanted them, I guess, to to just like their faces to break out into uh, uh, like knowing, uh, like enlightenment, enlightened <laughs> laughing. So, uh, but the uh, concept of commenting on it is something I've always done from the very first time I did stand up. I've just gotten better at commenting over the years. Because <laughs> the first time I did stand up and I did a joke and it didn't work, I went, wow, that joke did not go over well. Let's talk about your place in the industry. Okay. One of your places in the industry, in the comedy industry specifically, is that every year you go to Just for Laughs Festival and deliver this speech on the state of comedy. This speech is a combination of a sincere assessment of what where comedy is at, you put that at 20%, and 80%, well, we'll say... 50% jokes at the expense of Jay Leno, hmm. and then 30% critiques of the world of comedy. Right. Um, how did you get started doing this? Well, let's just say, when you ask me what my place is in showbiz is, as you're saying that, all not all I'm thinking, but I, it does occur to me that until the contract is signed for this year, I can't even say I'm going back this year. So it's like, <laughs> I, I assume it's going to be every year, but there's a part of me that uh, from being in a horrible business, uh, money-wise, uh, except for four people, uh, uh, you always are nervous that you're not going to get invited back. But that that being said, it has been a long time, so I assume I'm going this year. What happened was I had written an article for National Lampoon called Hack Comics Handbook, and it is still on my website. Uh, nothing else has been updated on my website, so why sh- and why should it? Well, what do you need to know? What do you need to know? Is basically the attitude of my website. So this was that article came out in like in the 91. early nineteen nineties, nineteen ninety one, yeah. right when- before. The implosion. Yeah. So there had been this huge comedy boom in the 1980s that led to 75 television programs that featured stand-up comedy and a profusion of new comedy clubs and an explosion of hack stand-up. Right. Um, And then right when you wrote that article pretty much, it all collapsed in on itself. People just got bored of it. Yeah. Well, you can imagine under any circumstances – that that movement would have had to have end, ended because there just couldn't be a artistic demand that there be 5,000 clubs in a town and they all have three comics on a show. They just couldn't sustain that kind of thing under any circumstances. You can point to a lot of historical things. Letterman, all those people in the 70s, they spawned the uh, comedy boom of the 80s. Uh, and so that's why, you know, but then that's why it happened. So what happened was you have more comedians and you could have uh, uh, good comics to fill these clubs. And then the club owners, all they cared about was making money and making sure the crowds were happy. And I think to some extent, and you know, I'll grant you, Andy, 
I was 11 years old, so I wasn't at the clubs. I think you were 11 years old when I first met you <laughs> in the 90s in San Francisco. <laughs> to be fair, I might have been 19 years old. But you were very, very uh, – uh, you were young and full of beans. Thank That's you. That's how I remember. Thank you. Um, I, I choose – In a, a good way, I'm saying. Okay, good. Did it sound – it sound if No. No. Yeah. I mean, but, I'll uh, take it. But you were – I would say you were precocious even. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> no, you're welcome. <laughs> So I think in the early 1990s, another thing that was going on was part of this business model was a sort of, hey, you haven't seen comedy before. This is comedy. It's fun. And when an audience has seen that a couple of times, has seen that hack comic pushing their sleeves up, that is no longer as effective as it once was. And so that that audience that has wandered into a comedy club to see comedy, just right. the general idea of comedy – that no longer works for them, and everything falls in on itself. Yeah, and you can't perpetuate an art form that's based on come see the comedy without knowing even what you're seeing. Uh, you know, I always use the analogy of movie. No one ever says, come to the movie theater. Well, what's playing? What do you care? <laughs> you, you're a, you like movies, right? Why don't you bring down you? Hi, you've, you've won. I used to do this joke. You've won our answer the phone contest. Uh, congratulations. Would you like to bring you and 50 people who know less than you about comedy to the club? Oh, great. Oh, hi, Bachelorette Party. Thanks for calling. Yes, we'd love to have your party here in our club. We'd love to make the comedy the second most or the third most important thing <laughs> after drinks and your Bachelorette Party. <laughs> um, I, I want to play a clip from the first time that you did this State of the Industry Address. It's just been re-released. This was a little bit more than 20 years ago in 1996. And even then, you were talking about Jay Leno. Um, well, first of all, they just offered Jay Leno $4 million to write a book. This is the new thing now. Well, I think Whoopi got $8 million. Everybody's getting millions of dollars to write a book. And they offered uh, Jay Leno $4 million. Jay Leno, who needs 18 writers to come up with a Kevorkian joke. All right? <laughs> He's going to write a book. <laughs> Chapter one. In medical news, I, uh... <laughs> Chapter two. McDonald's is a situation there. It's unbelievable. <laughs> Chapter three. And finally... And finally... Jay Leno is a big puppet, okay? You can play around with the hair and you can move the strings, but he's going to be a puppet for the next 40 years. Get used to it, enjoy it, have a hot toddy, and enjoy him. I think by the 21st century, Jay Leno was a commonly accepted cultural punching bag, if if a very successful one. In 1996, maybe a little bit less so. He was there was still a lot of memories of Jay Leno, legendary stand-up comedian of the 1970s and 80s. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think amongst so many comics had turned on him by then. So amongst comics, he wasn't popular. I don't even think he was that nice to the people he came up with. He wasn't like Dennis Miller, who's just a everyone before he even became a right wing. Uh, um, mor- I don't want to use the word moron, uh, but even before that, everyone knew this guy's an unpleasant person. 
<laughs> you never hear a story. You've met Dennis Miller? Oh, my God. This is the sweetest guy in the world. He uh, he gave me a lift to uh, my violin lessons. I only took violin lessons, so that's why I said that. But no, uh, uh, Jay Leno had the reputation of being a nice guy, kind of. Although if you spoke to people who know Jay Leno, who I do know him, uh, people knew him, he's a very vicious guy. Like, he'll make fun of other comics. And that's why in the 80s... He was so he was funny, and of course I don't know if the irony is the right word, but he he was the funniest when he went on Letterman. That was the worst part of him stabbing Letterman on the. He just what he happened is he wanted to get into the stabbing people in the back business. He started with Letterman, and then years later, in his final stab in the back, he said, "Yeah, yeah, 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 I'll I'll, I'll retire in five years, Conan. Sure, that sounds great. Yeah, I'll retire in five years. Yeah, sure, sure. Okay, I'm happy to do it. You know me, company man." And uh, you know what I'll do? I'll wait till about, I'll wait till everybody moves their family out here from New York to take over Tonight Show, and then I'll say, oh, "I don't want to go." So that's so he stabbed Cohen in the back. It's like, and the thing is, is that, and then, he, but he used to use Helen Kushnick as the excuse. Helen Kushnick was his manager, and uh, there was that movie, The Late Shift, and whether you believe everything in that movie, I don't know. But the point is, is that uh, something, something happened to him. I'm not a, a psychiatrist, but that doesn't stop me from diagnosing him. <laughs> but he has that, uh, I don't know what you call that kind of personality. It's not his real personality. The thing that really bothered me mo- most about him taking over the show, it was the fact that he has no interest other than cars, which he doesn't seem that interested in either. Have you ever seen that show where he talks about cars? I watched that show. I watched his show about cars once for uh, about an hour on an airplane. And did he seem that interested even in that subject? More. He's more interested. Yeah, well, he has a, he has a kind of light, light bouncing, skipping quality, right? like a water slider or whatever those bugs are called that stand on top of the water tension. <laughs> like, he has a, like, he's a good host. Yes. And... Uh, and he has that quality of, oh, eh, 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 hmm, eh, kind eh. of quality right. that allowed me to watch the show for an hour. Yes. And yes. So, oh, no. Well, that's the thing. You could never say this man isn't talented, but you could say that he's uh, – you could say a lot of other negative things about him. It's a bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with comedian Andy Kindler. He's a stand-up. He also delivers an annual State of the Industry speech at the Just for Laughs Comedy Festival. It seems like your the reason that Jay Leno became the late motif of these talks for fifteen years is not so much because you don't think he has talent as because you think that he has betrayed his talent in some way. I think that he's betrayed. In fact, without getting heavy, because I really don't want to be known as or see myself as the person who's trying to solve the problems of the world. I did that with warning people about Trump and it didn't help. But uh, the thing about it is I usually am hardest on people I did like. Like Rick, another example, Ricky Gervais. I love The Office so much that I was like, Ricky Gervais, he's the king. Ricky Gervais, I just, maybe I loved him too much. Maybe that's my own problem. That, that I, because people are funny, I I want to like them too much. And so then when he came into this, all this other stuff, which is just basically, unpl- just basically that character, David Brent, is who he is, unfortunately. And that's not a joke. 
And then when he's just like, you know, you go to his Twitter feed and half of his tweets are about how he's an atheist. The other half of his tweets are about how he doesn't care what people think about him. And then the other half of that adds up to a whole are just promo. He's a guy, how rich, there's nobody probably richer than him because he has all these offices that started. There's an office in Hungary that they make. There's an office in Cotter that they make. And so this guy... Let the record show for folks who are at home that Andy punctuated the word Cotter with an extended head askew take. Also, I thought of doing a welcome back Cotter joke, <laughs> but I know that's been done before. See, I, I at least know when things have been done before. And so uh, this guy, his whole Twitter page, Ricky Gervais, is him retweeting other fan accounts of Ricky Gervais fan art. Oh, look what they've said. About me. Maybe I should retweet that. Why is he promoting so hard? What is his problem? Why doesn't he go get help and leave the rest of it out of it? Less of it out of it. Because that's one of my current jokes from the current speech was how much is Netflix without uh, Derek and the Adam Sandler movies? Give me a price on that. A monthly price <laughs> on Netflix if I don't want to watch Derek and I don't want to watch the Adam Sandler movie about Native Americans. More of my conversation with Andy Kindler in just a bit. He'll tell me about the hardest part of giving that State of the Industry address, staying funny and angry at the same time. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. Check out NPR's Hidden Brain, hosted by Shankar Vedantam. Hidden Brain uses science and storytelling to help you understand the world around you and yourself. Wondering why it's so hard to change your best friend's views? Feeling like you're in a bit of a rut and need to get unstuck? Hidden Brain can help you with those questions and plenty of others. Find it now on the NPR One app and wherever you listen to podcasts. Support for Bullseye comes from Sunbasket. Sunbasket makes it easy to cook nutritionist-approved meals in your own kitchen with organic, non-GMO ingredients from farms and fishermen sent directly to your door. Choose from paleo, gluten-free, vegetarian, breakfast, and family options. You'll get pre-measured ingredients and easy-to-follow directions and get dinner on the table in 30 minutes. NPR listeners get their first three meals free at sunbasket.com bullseye. Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We'll get back to my conversation with the great Andy Kindler in just a second. But first, let's talk about Pop Rocket. It's Bullseye's sister show here at Maximum Fun. It's a panel discussion, a sort of free-ranging chat with some of the smartest, funniest people in the world, talking about why we love what we love about pop culture. All of it is hosted by the one and only Guy Branham. Hey, Guy! What's popping on Pop Rocket this week? Hey, Jesse. This week, Pop Rocket is doing our big summer movie preview. We're looking at all of the blockbusters that are coming out this summer and none of these small, interesting movies. <laughs> Only things where things get blown up. <laughs> Sounds good, Guy. And hey, if you're looking for more entertainment, a Guy has been doing this show on True TV called Talk Show the Game Show. And it is one of the funniest things on television. Like, set your DVRs uh, for Talk Show, the game show, and set your podcasting software for Pop Rocket. Uh, let's get back to the show. Andy Kindler, my guest, stand-up comedian. He's the host of Hulu's Coming to the Stage. His latest album is a recording of his legendary 1996 State of the Industry Address at the Just for Laughs Comedy Festival. It was released earlier this year. There's something of... of uh, 
sad idealist in this 1996 piece where you you will just occasionally check in with Seinfeld, the TV show. And you'll say, well, there's Seinfeld. I do love Seinfeld. (laughs) Right. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's why it took me so long to get where I ever even had to say – uh, something negative about Seinfeld, which was a, which was a couple of years ago when he started to do that whole thing about the I can't play colleges anymore. No, you know he, he he launched into that because I love Seinfeld, and I love the show Seinfeld, but I have never been a fan of Seinfeld talking about comedy because he's always if you took the things that he said about comedy over the years and there was a trial, he would be guilty. Because he used to say, it's never it's never the crowd. It's always the comic. A comic should be able to play any room whatsoever. It's always your fault, never the audience's fault. And then three years ago, because they didn't like his gay French, not even they didn't like his gay French king bit. They didn't fall over, doubled over when he said gay French king. Then he went the other way. I can't do comedy anymore with this PC world. I want to play some more from Andy Kindler sure. in 1996 in his very first State of the Industry address, the annual address that he gives at the Just for Laughs Festival in Montreal. And this is Andy talking a little bit about racism in Hollywood. And remember, this was 1996, the absolute high water mark for UPN sitcoms and other very broadly WB, targeted. Like WB, like the Wayne's Brothers. Yeah. Let's take a listen. There's so much racism in uh, in Hollywood. It's like whenever they describe like a black comic in the papers, you know, like a critic, it'll always be in terms of another black comic. How we, how ridiculous is that? He had the good looks of Bill Cosby, the edge of Richard Pryor. They would never think of comparing a black comic to a white comic. Doesn't that seem sick to you on some level? Or do you agree with that? Do you believe that only I should only be judged in terms of I have the looks of Myron Cohn? <laughs> I had forgotten about the entertainment context of 1996, uh, and it all came rushing back to me when you, in this talk, talked about homeboys from outer space. Uh, the, <laughs> the, the network, I mean semi-network, but broadcast television sitcom, Homeboys from Outer Space. I forgot that myself. Which was a real thing that was really on television. <laughs> I think in the in the in the speech you talk about the executives having said, you know, we just came up with that name at lunch. Right. Well, the other thing is that I always what I'm what I was trying to bring attention to was racism that you don't even think about. So, like, if you're reading an article about a, a black comedian, they compare it to another black comedian, you might not think in your mind, you oh yeah, why not, right? But the, it's 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 like, and I the other example I used was when there would be a show where they have all black people, and the show would fail. Then show business would say, "Well, we tried the black people, and it didn't work out. We tried, but meanwhile, a million white shows fell with all white people. They never draw the conclusion. You know what the problem with this show was? There were too many white people, and in that that actually could have been a proper conclusion." <laughs> you could probably just make a rule of cutting back on the white people and improve any project 50%. Here's my question for you, Andy. You've been doing these um, State of the Industry addresses for more than 20 years now. Correct. Do you feel like you have learned or achieved something by doing them? I think so because I've learned – 
I've had to confront every one of my emotional problems through this speech. So it, whether my emotional problem is uh, that I want to be able to say things about people but then have them still like me or that I had to uh, wrestle, like that I had to learn that the funnier things were more ro- – like I used to love when Letterman would make a mean joke and then he would say, I'm sorry, I thought this was a roast. You know, <laughs> So I did learn over the years that the ones that are more roast-like, like I had a joke about Jay Leno's in the Guinness Book of Records for going the longest period of time without having an authentic moment. You know, <laughs> Those jokes <laughs> tend to work better than when it's just – pure anger. But then I also learned about being purely angry. I also learned about being scared when I talked about uh, Anthony Camilla that one year and I got back to LA and you know people were sending me concentration camp pictures on uh, on on Twitter. So I learned everything. This it's been the major uh, on years when I couldn't do anything. Uh uh uh, a couple of years ago, my dad my dad passed, and all of a sudden, I got to this point where I was just paralyzed. I couldn't do anything, but I always had to write this speech. So it almost like got me through really bad times, too. So, yeah, I mean, I'm really thankful for everything that I've done, except I wish if I had gotten paid like three times as much every year for the speech, like $100,000 or maybe – that's not three times as much – that I could retire. Why can't a man like me retire on a speech like that? Why can't that speech be turned into a cottage industry? Why am I working so hard? <laughs> um, I never do this, but can I set you up for, for a joke from your act? Mm-hmm. I hope you, I remember it. Do you feel like you have a core demographic? Yes. I believe that my target audience. I did some. I did some research studies and groups, and we found out that my target audience, my target, my target audience is men my age who are me. <laughs> men my age who are me. Also, I uh, my advice to people to get into the show business: take the high road. No traffic. <laughs> oh, bless you, Andy Kindler. Thank you so much for coming on Bullseye. Thank you. I love your show. I listen to it all the time. Oh. It cheers me up. And uh, I I literally am amazed at how much you know. Well, maybe it's because I know so little about everything. <laughs> But you know so much about, uh, especially music. I'm, it's incredible. I'm, you know I'm about, faking it, Andy. You know, you, no, you know about hip-hop. I don't know about I My idea of uh, don't push me because I'm close to the edge. That's the last uh, hip-hop. No, I know a little bit about hip-hop. I'm just amazed and uh, I'm very excited to, and, and you cheer me up when I'm down. And uh, you uh, are the wind beneath my Jew. Thank you, Andy. You're the wind beneath my goy. Thank you for having me. Andy Kindler. His latest record is a recording of his 1996 State of the Industry Address. It's out now. Listen to it. Hear Dave Chappelle ask a question from the back. Make sure you catch him on Hulu's Coming to the Stage. And, and if you want to see Andy give his 2017 State of the Industry speech, you've still got time. It's going down in July in Montreal. Ticket info on our website. Find the Bullseye page at MaximumFun.org. Every week we wrap up Bullseye with a pop culture recommendation from me. 
It's the outshot. There are a lot of apocryphal stories about Ricky Henderson, but I am not really interested in repeating them here. Because Ricky Henderson isn't a collection of funny stories. Ricky Henderson is one of the greatest baseball players of all time. Number 24, Ricky Henderson, left field. And a fly ball, right field. Is it going to fall? Is it going to fall? There it is! There it is! Number 3,000 for Ricky Henderson. And the Padres come streaming out of the dugout to congratulate their teammate when his first at bat has garnered his 3,000th career hit. Ricky got traded back to the A's in 1989. I was eight years old. Ricky was born and raised in Oakland, so it was kind of a homecoming. When I think of him, I think of him in that right-hand batter's box, neon green batting gloves, tight squat stance, wound up, short to the ball, uncoiling like a spring. And I think of him edging off of first base, taking his lead. You know, they said that when his fingers started dancing, it meant he was going. There was nothing you could do about it. Can't play a normal position. Here he goes. Pitch is inside. Tettle and throw. And he is in safely with number 1,000. There's a high fly ball. Left field. That ball to the wall. That's the wall. And there goes another home run. And there goes a new all-time run scoring record by Ricky Henderson. Oh, doctor. Ricky was single-minded and his commitment to baseball. He did push-ups and sit-ups every night. He never went in the training room, just got out on the field, wound up, and uncoiled. One kid in my park baseball league had the Ricky Henderson batting gloves, the ones with the neon pads. Kid's name was Philip. We all wanted to be Philip because we all wanted to be Ricky. A three, a one-nothing deficit. Ricky goes, a pitch ticket. He's going to have it. He does. Ricky Henderson... No contest, steals third base, jerks the bag from its moorings, and holds it aloft, representing number 939. That's hit to deep left field. Henderson back to the wall. Ricky leaps and makes the catch and takes a home run away from Cal Ripken. Highway robbery in left field. I'm too young to have known the early career Ricky Henderson, the 130 steel Ricky. I knew the mid-career Ricky, slower, stronger, craftier. I think a lot about the 1989 American League Championship Series, A's against the Blue Jays, the year Ricky came home to Oakland. It started in the first game. Twice in a row, he drew a walk, then stole second, then stole third, and scored. Every time he batted, he was a ticking bomb. Every time he was on base, he was the center of attention. Jose Canseco could be at the plate. Scariest hitter in the world, and every eye in the ballpark was on Ricky Henderson's dancing fingers, leading off first base. In game two, Ricky walked to start the game, sort of unhinged the pitcher, forced a second walk to Carney Lansford, then scored on two sacrifice flies. In the third, he doubled, then stole third, 
than scored on a single. In Game 3, he homered twice. In Game 4, he led off with a walk, stole second, scored on a single. By the end of the fifth game, he'd been on base 13 times. He'd stolen eight bases, scored eight times, and knocked in five more. It was like watching a tiger play with a ball of yarn. Ball is hit well to left field. Ricky is racing back, and Fletcher, oh, it's caught! Ricky made a heck of a play. What a play. Nine, nine. Look at Ricky. Knows where he is now, knows where he has to go. There's the warning track, there's the wall, up and above, and he grabs it. That's either going to be just on the top of the fence or, or maybe out of there. What a play. And he gets a high fly ball to left field, and that one is carrying, and back goes Mitchell, and it's a launching pad again tonight. And I have to tell you, I've seen a lot of games in this park, and that fooled everybody. But on a winless night, what would be a normal routine fly ball goes out, just like last night, one to nothing. He won the MVP the next year. 31 years old, just past his prime, especially for a runner. But he dominated the league, and he just kept going. Ricky played forever, into the 21st century, when his bat wasn't as quick. He could still run. He'd still work a walk. He stole 25 bases when he was 42, playing in San Diego. He still looked like Ricky at 44 in Los Angeles. The lines on his face were deeper, but he still had those powerful thighs, that deep stance, that focused scowl, and a smile that lit up the ballpark. When the majors didn't have room for him anymore, he kept playing. He played three years of indie ball. At 46, 46, he stole 16 bags for a team called the San Diego Surf Dogs. I remember people making fun of him back then. 46-year-old who wouldn't give it up. But he believed in Ricky. He always believed in Ricky. So, spare me from some tedious joke about Ricky being solipsistic or dumb or too Oakland Tech to be the right kind of ball player. Capital R, capital K, capital B. For real, I am not interested. Lose me with that mess. Instead, how about this? Try doing one thing in your life, one single action, planting a flower, writing an inter-office memo, chopping an onion. Try doing one damn thing for 25 damn seconds as masterfully as Ricky Henderson played ball. Then I guess you can tell your funny story. That's my outshot. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye recorded at MaximumFun.org headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. Big news for our producer, Kevin, uh, who likes to keep an eye on things in the park. A lot of goslings and ducklings showing up. It is springtime after all. Also, there is an orange and white police barricade floating around in the lake. Not sure what that's about. Our show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Christian Duenas. Production fellows at MaximumFun.org are Kara Hart and Nick Liao. Our senior producer, Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music provided to us by Dan Wally, a.k.a. DJW. Our theme music, recorded by the Go Team, provided to us by them and their record label, Memphis Industries. Our thanks. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, please go listen to them. They're at MaximumFun.org. Yeah, just go over there and, and give them a listen. Or, you know, load it up in your podcast software. Just seriously, listen to it. And also... Uh, while I'm here talking to you, if you're a Bullseye fan, 
and you're still listening and I'm doing the credits like I'm at the end of the credits so you're probably a Bullseye fan um, we are recording some testimonials for the show uh, folks saying why they listen to Bullseye so answer the question why do I listen to Bullseye on our voicemail at 323-484-4712 323-484-4712 give us a call tell us why you love the show and I guess that's about it just remember All great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.